There are nearly 300,000 University of Alberta alumni around the world. They are your neighbors, your community members, your colleagues. You'll find them in all manner of work, in all kinds of places. And when disaster strikes, you'll find them on the front lines. These are their stories. This is The Line. So I think there's two big hopes we're looking for, an effective vaccine and effective antiviral therapy. That's the voice of Dr. Lorne Tyrell. He's an alumnus, a physician, and the founding director of the Lee Keshing Institute of Virology at the University of Alberta. Dr. Tyrell knows a thing or two about infectious diseases. His research at the U of A led to the first antiviral therapy drug for the hepatitis B virus, saving the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of patients. For those efforts and more, Dr. Tyrell was named to the Alberta Order of Excellence in 2000 became an officer of the Order of Canada in 2002, and in 2011, he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. He's kind of a big deal. Right now, he and his colleagues at the Lee Keshing Institute of Virology are at the very front of the front lines in the struggle against COVID-19. For our season one finale, we spoke to Dr. Tyrell because we wanted to know what challenges virologists face right now, what progress is being made, and we wanted some insight on the coronavirus from the perspective of someone who's worked on infectious diseases for decades. The first thing I asked him about was for some background on coronaviruses in general. Well, coronaviruses have actually been around for quite a while, and um, coronaviruses, there are four coronaviruses that circulate in the human population that cause upper respiratory tract infections or even um, some lower respiratory tract infections. And the common cold unit in the UK uh, did a study of all the viruses that could cause the symptoms of the common cold. And they did this in 1967 and discovered that there were some viruses that had this unusual electron microscopy appearance with the spikes on them. And they came up with the name coronaviruses but there were four coronaviruses that are involved in common, causing common infections, but not fatal infections. And then SARS came along in 2002, 2003 in Hong Kong. And because some people had traveled from Hong Kong to Vancouver to Toronto, Toronto became an epicenter in North America for uh, SARS. And I think there were 47 deaths in Toronto related to the SARS and quite a number of people that were infected. In 19, 2013, we had another outbreak of a coronavirus, and this is called MERS, which is the Middle East uh, coronavirus causing a respiratory syndrome similar to uh, COVID-19. Actually, MERS has a much higher mortality rate. We don't know the exact mortality rate in COVID-19, but it uh, is probably in the range of anywhere from three to 5%, whereas the MERS has a mortality rate of about 34%. And SARS, the first SARS had a mortality rate around 9%. The difference was that both the SARS and the MERS were able to be controlled by public health measures because they're not quite as highly transmissible as is the COVID-19. And the COVID-19 is highly transmissible, making the public health uh, work a lot harder. And uh, we've seen some very positive results with good public health measures. And that's usually the first step when you're trying to control a respiratory infection. But uh, 
it looks like this virus is going to be with us for a long time. It may continue to circulate like the other four coronaviruses, and that would be a major problem. And it may come back almost like a seasonal flu. So we'll see periods when people may get a coronavirus-like infection. A question I frequently ask guests on this podcast is at what point their alarm bells went off regarding COVID-19. In other words, when did they think the nature of what they do and how they do it would change drastically because of this virus? I posed this same question to Dr. Tyrell, expecting that as a virologist working in a virology institute, he's likely always been on the lookout for a possible pandemic. Well, I think most people who work in virology have always been concerned that we could see a virus that would cause another pandemic. Like we saw in 1918, 1919, or 1957 with flu, or 1968. And when you look at, uh, you know, think about the death rates in 1918, 19 from flu, there was about 50 million deaths worldwide. We're now looking at a half a million with COVID. But I think the world is so much more sophisticated and travel is so much more important. The rapid spread of COVID has really caused social dysfunction, economic dysfunction, and huge challenges for virologists. So uh, COVID-19, even though we haven't reached those death rates, uh, still has caused tremendous turmoil in the world and we need to find solutions. And I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure on everybody working in the field to find solutions. And I think some of that pressure has also led to some problems as we've seen some uh, political aspects and antivirals. I think these are important uh, issues that were publicized and uh, the research data was rushed in many cases, even to very good journals. And the peer review has not been as good as it is in normal circumstances because everybody feels the pressure to see new results come out or some hope to come out. And I think some of those uh, results were brought to our attention too early before the real proof was there. Dr. Tyrell noted that because of the success public health had at cutting off SARS and later MERS, work that was being done on vaccines and antivirals to combat those coronaviruses was left unfinished. But as COVID-19 has continued to spread despite public health measures, he says we will need vaccines and antivirals. Once we get about two-thirds of the population with an antibody to COVID-19, it would probably disappear and not be able to continue to circulate. However, um, that depends on a very good vaccine. The other approach, of course, to these type of viral infections is very good antivirals. And <clears throat> there are some compounds that are being developed that I believe are very good antivirals. And we have to find a way to use them that will allow us to change the course of the disease. In my conversation with Dr. Tyrell, antivirals were a real point of emphasis for him. While vaccines are obviously the best possible outcome, he stressed that antivirals have an important role to play. After all, this disease will be with us for a long time, and in some parts of the world, it may be difficult to get everyone vaccinated. It's important that we have good treatments as well as a vaccine. Well, I, I want to illustrate how important antiviral drugs are 
relative to vaccines. You know, no question, if we get a good vaccine, that's the number one goal right now. And a very good vaccine that prevented this disease and we could immunize most people, that's, the, uh, that's what we're really looking for. That's most important. However, you know, there's two very major viral diseases that we've hunted for a long time for good vaccines and have been unsuccessful. This is HIV AIDS, we still don't have a vaccine, and hepatitis C, we don't have a good vaccine. Yet both of those diseases are under very much better control. AIDS patients, we have a lot, a lot of different drugs that can work against the AIDS virus. And when they're used in the right combinations, we're down to one pill a day to give people a normal life expectancy with no evidence of the disease being reactivated. And uh, the same thing with hepatitis C. We've developed very effective antivirals for hepatitis C that can treat this chronic infection and cure it so that uh, you can see how important antivirals are as well as vaccines. So our two big diseases, no vaccine, yet very good antivirals. And uh, our work in, continues here to try to find antiviral agents that will inhibit the COVID-19. One of the few antivirals to show success against COVID-19 has a U of A connection. It's a drug called remdesivir. It's gotten a lot of international press. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and a lead member of America's Coronavirus Task Force, talking about it back in late April. You, you know, you said that remdesivir is not a knockout. This isn't a miracle drug, but it sounds like it is a breakthrough. Can you explain why? Well, it's a really important proof of concept because this is the first very highly powered, about 1,100 individuals, and it was a placebo-controlled, randomized trial, which I've been talking about for some time now, which is really the gold standard of how you prove something is safe and either works or doesn't work. And although the results were clearly positive from a statistically significant standpoint, they were modest. The improvement was 31% better chance of recovering and getting out of the hospital. That's important, but it's the first step in what we project will be better and better drugs coming along, either alone. Originally a drug used to treat Ebola, Dr. Tyrell talked about the work that's gone into remdesivir at the U of A. And uh, a lot of work has been done at the University of Alberta by Matthias Cote on a drug called remdesivir that's produced by Gilead. And Matthias's work has really shown exactly how that virus is inhibited by remdesivir. And it's an excellent drug in all aspects as from its mechanism of action. It really does uh, inhibit the virus very effectively. However, we uh, need to see more clinical trials to show that this drug, I think the original trials, it was used in people who are very ill and late and the antivirals don't have a good chance of showing much benefit if you use it very late. But if we were using it earlier, and we had a good drug and hopefully an oral drug that you could use as soon as somebody's diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, you could put them on the medication for five to 10 days and maybe completely change the course of the disease. So I think there's two big hopes we're looking for, an effective vaccine and effective antiviral therapy.
Speaking of vaccines, U of A researchers are working on those too. Dr. John Lewis and his company Entos are preparing two vaccines for clinical trials in humans later this summer. These vaccines have already shown promising antibody responses in animal testing. Dr. Tyrell cautions, however, that we're still learning about this virus and our potential immunity to it through vaccines. Well, in vaccines, there is many challenges, but the first challenge is to find the right way to produce that vaccine and to find the right antigens that will produce uh, long-lasting immunity. We don't know how long the immunity will last. I mean, we see in influenza that it changes enough over a period of time that we have to keep revaccinating. The COVID-19 virus is a little different than that. It's a big virus of about uh, 30,000 base pairs compared to 10,000 for the uh, uh, influenza virus. And influenza mutates a fair amount. The COVID-19 has some proofreading ability in its, uh, its RNA synthesis. So it doesn't make as many mistakes and it may not mutate as fast as influenza, but I would suggest that it will still mutate and we'll still have to find how long immunity will last and whether or not we have to rejigger the vaccines and re-immunize at different times. These are questions that are still before us that we don't know the answers to. A lot of additional government funding has gone into research in response to COVID-19. For example, in April, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced $1.1 billion for COVID-19 vaccine, clinical trials, and immunity research. I asked Dr. Terrell about the importance of sustained funding for virology research. He noted that sustained funding is important not just for health reasons, but also to lessen the economic impact of a pandemic. Well, we do need to have sustained funding in uh, a number of viruses that could lead to pandemics. And I think that's uh, very important. And we're seeing, you know, we've struggled to get CHR to increase the funding to scientists so they could maintain their work in Canada. And uh, it's been hard to get them to increase. We wanted uh, the budget to go up to a billion dollars a year. I can remember I was working on that and it's taken time to get there. But this pandemic is showing that we can bring out a lot of money very quickly if you need to. And uh, when you see the effect of uh, this money going in and now supporting research, um, it, and particularly in vaccines, but also in antivirals, there's a lot of money going in that we couldn't get before. And the message should be, when we see the economic disruption of the world, the world governments should get together some way to ensure that uh, antivirals and vaccines are developed for potential viruses that could cause pandemics. We still worry about influenza. And if influenza is the one that we expected to see the pandemic from, but the coronaviruses, influenza, and there may be others that could lead to uh, this type of uh, problem in the world. And I would point out that you know, antivirals in this case, you're using them for a short period of time. This is an acute disease. So they're not hugely profitable to companies and companies may not be interested in developing these from a, from a financial point of view compared to uh, the importance of having them available to prevent the economic impact of a pandemic like this. For almost all of us, this is the first global pandemic we've experienced. 
but will it be the last? Have we often been teetering on the edge of a pandemic from one pathogen or another, or has COVID-19 been an outlier? You know, with all the technology we have in the world and the advances in science, it was hard to imagine that a piece of RNA, it's a, rightfully so, it's a little bigger RNA virus, but a, when you think of it, a piece of RNA, as my friend Jack Germana said, to think that a piece of RNA can bring the world to its knees. And uh, that's exactly what's happened. We've got an RNA virus that has brought the world to its knees. And there are other viruses and pathogens out there that can do the same thing. And many of us in virology thought it would be influenza. And we have seen some fairly pathogenic influenza viruses that might be easily transmitted. And influenza, we still don't have very good antivirals for. We have some that are okay, but not nearly what we need. And the work going on for antivirals in this area must continue if, because uh, we wanna make sure that if there's another virus causing a pandemic, we're better prepared. We had warnings from SARS and MERS, and we should have been better prepared for a coronavirus causing the pandemic we see today. And I say that we, meaning the whole world, governments in many different countries and scientists also. There were some scientists that predicted there could be a problem with coronaviruses and they were very accurate. But uh, many scientists predicted there could be pandemics and we could have another pandemic. And you can see the devastation it causes personal social, economic uh, devastation that we can't afford to have many of these. Based on Dr. Tyrell's expertise, I wanted to know what lessons we should be learning right now and what we should be doing to prepare for the rest of this pandemic. Well, I think that we need to uh, look as a country in Canada to make sure we have the ability to scale up and produce uh, vaccines or to produce uh, some of the compounds we might need on a short-term basis. Uh, but we should have these facilities set up that can be used for the vaccine production or antiviral production when we need them. We're, we're still suffering right now because although we have some capacity to produce vaccines, it's not uh, as big as some other countries. We need to see um, better planning in that regard. But internationally, there should be uh, pooling of some funds from international governments that allows for uh, the development of products that may not have the profit motive that companies would need, but have tremendous importance to preventing pandemics. And I think uh, that type of an approach is needed, uh, not only in virology and antivirals, but we might need to see it in some other diseases as well, where uh, we could see uh, new therapies developed that are extremely expensive and don't get out to people as much as they should. We need to find a way to get these more readily available to a bigger population so that uh, nobody goes without the newer therapies that we develop. In the latest Neutral magazine, there's an article about hope written by my colleague, Amy Filco. In it, she writes, The hope I am taking away from this story is the hope of school kids who cope with sadness and anxiety. The hope of people 
who talk through their depression, and the hope of hospice patients who wake up each morning and live. This hope is not a cure-all. It's a mindset. It's an orientation. As we wrap up Season 1 of The Line, and I reflect on the alumni working on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic, hope is my orientation. This pandemic is paralyzing. It keeps us apart from our loved ones, leaves us feeling trapped in our own homes, fearful for our health, and uncertain about the future. It's a palpable anxiety that I know I feel daily. But I orient towards hope because I know there are thousands of alumni, people from my community, fighting against this pandemic and uplifting those who have been affected. They make me believe that we will come out of this okay. I have one more clip from Dr. Tyrell I want to share, and I think it's a fitting end to this episode and season. I would like to also compliment many of the frontline workers that have been out there uh, dealing with the patients so very effectively. And this is, this means uh, not only doctors and nurses, but lab technicians that work with those specimens that come in, with the people that keep essential services open, they all deserve a lot of credit during this time. And uh, I would like to just say, if we've sold the concept of flattening the curve in that first pace, and we're trying to develop a vaccine that everybody understands, I would like to uh, push the concept or make people understand the importance of altering the course of the disease with the early use of effective antivirals. The Line is a University of Alberta Alumni Association podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Matt Ray, and produced by me and Chloe Chalmers. We began this podcast with an interview with Dr. Quadro Caramantang on Wednesday, March 25th. So much has changed since then. On March 25th, globally, there had been more than 438,000 confirmed cases and almost 19,000 deaths. As I record this message, in the 96 days that have passed since I interviewed Quadwo, global cases have risen past 10.1 million, and there have been more than 500,000 deaths. 